This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we are going to talk a little bit about Boeing. Like always, uh, the FAA is going to be looking into some reports uh, from employees about pressure on their engineers. Uh, We'll also talk about Raytheon has recently uh, announced they're going to acquire FlightAware. We'll talk through the implications there, what they do, what they might do and add to the Raytheon portfolio of businesses. Uh, We'll talk about the A319neo, which is now undergoing passenger flight testing. There's already been a few corporate customers have gotten their A319s, but passenger jets uh, are just now in in testing. And in our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about UPS has been delivering some COVID vaccines in North Carolina. Um, Archer is announcing a deal that will bring EVTOL landing sites to major cities. And we'll talk about Tesla's uh, news that they're confirming that 100% of their scrapped batteries are recycled and none are going to landfill, which has obviously big implications for the EVTOL sector, which is a very big positive that, you know, one major company is already doing this. So lends um, pretty positive, optimistic future for this battery technology. So, Alan, let's start with Boeing. Um, you know, we've talked about this idea of undue pressure before. Is this exactly what's at issue here? So as you read through this this story, and this has gotten a lot of press recently, uh, about Boeing's treatment of, of uh, safety employees. It sounds like these are DERs, is that right? Yes, but they're working in what they call an ODA, an organizational delegation. And so they're acting like an FAA internal to Boeing, but the employee, they're Boeing employees, but they're doing the work on behalf of the FAA. So it's, it's not like an FAA employee is sitting at a desk looking at designs. That's not what happens here. Yeah, so it's a... And a Boeing employee that's acting on behalf of the FAA. Okay. And so it sounds like just this is continuing to be that sort of culture where employees are afraid to talk honestly, that their bosses get upset with them when they say, hey, this safety concern might push us back for you know a couple of weeks on deadline or months. Um, I mean, what seems to be the core issue here? Because Boeing's a gigantic company. They are. And the FAA reached out just to find, to take a survey of um, some of the, what they call unit members of this ODA. And, and they came back and so they had about 30 surveys go out, 30, 30, 35 surveys go out. 10 of them, 11 of them had uh, responses that were not ideal from the FAA's perspective. And those responses were, my manager was upset uh, what they call <clears throat> what we used to call der shopping or unit member shopping is if one unit member gives you the the wrong quote unquote wrong answer you go look for another unit member to give you the right answer from a company's perspective and, and just generalized disagreements that are going to occur in any sort of high pressure engineering environment those are i think typical things to happen so the faa is coming back and saying these Boeing employees are acting on behalf of the FAA, and we expect, we, the FAA, expect that you're going to treat them like you would treat an FAA employee. You're not going to go look for another FAA engineer to to sign off your drawing, and 
you're not going to uh, uh, get embattled back and forth typically with an FAA engineer. You know, you just try to figure out what the difference of opinions are and, and find a resolution. What the tricky part of this is, is that I think in any survey that you put out, you're always going to have 20 to 30 percent. They're going to have comments of some sort. That's just going to be the nature of it. And I, I, I think that would be pretty typical. If we saw 50% of the uh, unit members come back with complaints, that would see it as a really serious issue. But 30% on a small sample seems about right to me. I think, and Dan, if you, you would know this. It's just like being in any sort of office environment. There's going to be disagreements. I guess the question is, how are you resolving them? And in the case of unit members, a lot of times, and I'm a unit member in multiple ODA organizations. One of the things I think an ODA has to do, or if it's already, if an ODA is working well, is the way that the, the management of the ODA handles those situations. If they try to resolve them and say, hey, let's just put our heads together. There's not always one solution here. It's not a, what the unit member says is the only possible outcome. That's usually not the case. Uh, can we find an altered solution we're both happy with? That never seems to happen. I mean, everybody's always somewhat disappointed, but at least there's some agreement that, yes, this is safe, and yes, the company can go off and manufacture this thing. You need to find some sort of conflict resolution setup, and I almost wonder if that's something within these large organizations they need to go do with the unit members and the management to say, hey, look, both sides can have their own thoughts about what ought to happen, but this is the way we resolve these things, and this is when we need to bring it upstairs to say, we can't resolve it. We need some help here. And maybe there isn't a correct, so, a, a good solution from like a, a company like Boeing's standpoint on the engineering side. Maybe they can't do it. Maybe they can't fix it. Maybe there is the unit member is offering the only way it can be done. Usually not, but possibly. And then, yeah, I mean, the, the company just has Boeing would have to just go eat it and, and do it. I think that's where all this kind of gets twisted around. There is, I don't think there's necessarily a culture of, at any aircraft company, uh, a universal culture of uh, trying to skirt the FAA or trying to beat up on its employees that are doing some of the sign-off stuff. That does I've never seen that happen. I think it just tends to be very localized, very specific to particular individuals that have mostly just different personalities in the way they handle um, disagreements. Uh, that seems to be what it is. Yeah, and it's also hard. You know, they took, um, it says, according to one FAA letter, one of the employees said, I, I had to have a sit down with the manager and explain why I can't approve something. And that worker indicated that the company shopped around for another employee in the engineering unit. That's still like, you know, okay, but there's still like some he said, she said. Maybe this employee has had a history of being really difficult. And, you know, you don't know. Or maybe that's not true. Or, you know, you, you just hear some like the, all right, here's the, here's the safety concern. And then they're unhappy because it's going to push them back and they you know, express some um, distaste just for that situation in general. Maybe it's, that's just human nature. And I don't know, are they expected to be like, okay, no problem. We know, we're going to take care of this whenever it gets done. Like that doesn't seem like a reasonable, you know, because everyone wants these planes to get done on schedule and on time. And there's going to be, I'm sure, disappointment or frustration um of varying degrees when there's a thing brought up that pushes them back so but then the question is does that really put pressure on them is that really 
um, where does it draw the line? Like, where is it? Yeah. Is it a pattern or is it just like, man, this is going to push us back. Is that really the, is that really the case? Do we really need to do that? That's seems like a pretty normal human response to something pushing back a deadline, but it, you know, again, it, there's just a lot of different flavors of it. So it's probably tough to flesh some of that out via survey, which is probably why the FAA is diving in deeper. Um, but yeah, I, I could see how it could be tricky. And just like on any, like you said, in any organization, there's a lot of just people's interpretation of the, of the facts. Like I played for baseball coaches who I never had one problem with them. And then you have a couple of players on the team that are like, yeah, that, that guy screws me over and it's this, 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 it's politics. And that's why I'm not getting my fair share. And it's like, that doesn't seem to be true. But if you listen to that person's report, that's the impression that you would get. So it's hard to know um, without taking either side, uh, probably with some of this until you just really, really dive into it. And I, I think in the case of the unit member shopping, which is the, it tends to be the critical linchpin here because it just feels wrong. I think there's I think there I think there are ways that it, it has been addressed with me in particular. I can only talk about my experience here what I've seen when I've seen it happen. When it's, I think the unit member has to know that the company is going to go ask for someone else's opinion. Why wouldn't they? It's like you're going to get a second opinion. If you get a cancer diagnosis, you're going to get a second opinion from another physician. You should do that. That's the right answer. And you should expect the company to go ask somebody else. The way, but I think it's, it's the way that it's done. If they just, if the if the management just kind of storms out and says screw off and then you know walks down twenty feet and starts talking to another unit member about it who's who's seeing it cold by the way uh, that doesn't ever feel right if they if they're in a discussion and say hey we want to bring in Bob's opinion would you mind if we brought in Bob to talk about it and just see if we can figure out a way to find a solution. I think most unit members would say, sure, that, that's fine with me. Obviously, an, another opinion is, is good to get because we're just trying to solve a problem. Everybody is trying to solve a problem. And I, so when it gets down to it, I really think it is just the way that the management and the unit member communicate what is about to happen. And no one wants to feel like they've just gotten stabbed in the back. And, and th- that can be solved by the way they handle it. So moving on, Raytheon uh, is set to acquire the flight tracking company uh, FlightAware, and they're going to fold them into their Collins Aerospace segment. Um, so FlightAware does a lot of like uh, data collection, analytics, stuff like that, customer experience. Um, Alan, how do you see this acquisition going for for Raytheon, and why why do you think they they want to to absorb them? Well, it's just it's related to Collins and the in the avionic. Uh business that they have. And FlightAware is a system, basically a system, that downloads all the data that's emitted by the airplane. So airplanes have this system on them which tells the world, hey, uh, this is my altitude, this is my airspeed, this is my direction, just really basic stuff about what's going on with the aircraft. And that data, if you've ever had the FlightAware app, and I have that app on my phone, if, if you're somewhere, like if you're sitting in Baltimore, Dan, if you're sitting in Baltimore and you're waiting for your flight, like, what the heck? My airplane should be here. You can get on FlightAware and find out where that airplane is. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's 20 minutes out or or it's still stuck in Dallas, that, that kind of thing. Uh, so FlightAware knows where pretty much any airplane is at any one particular time. But they also know the way that they're flying, uh, uh, ascent rate, descent rates, uh, if they get detoured, all these different things. So you can... 
because they have so much information about how airplanes actually perform, particularly airliners, you can then tailor what's happening in the cockpit to address some of those situations, which is a huge advantage, right? And I've always wondered why FlightAware wasn't grabbed by a Garmin or a Collins or a Honeywell, because you, it seems to me like you would want to have that data at your fingertips because it tells you so much about the use of your product outside of what the pilots say. Right. So you right. So you're, you can tap it be like Tesla sort of thing. Like Tesla knows a lot about what happens with the cars because there's feedback. But if you ask the Tesla drivers, I think you're going to get a slightly different response. So you can actually get bear down onto what is actually happening on the airplanes, which is worth. You know, I don't know what they I don't remember seeing what they paid for it, but it's that's worth a pretty penny. Yeah, no, that makes sense to get, you know, control of those analytics and and have an idea, like you said, of how your product is used. Um, yeah, I'm sure they're going to recoup that that uh, that investment pretty fast when, you know, they can say, OK, well, we can we can redevelop or reimagine this product this way or this this way to you know make these upgrades to our avionics or whatever. That seems like that's a that's a like you said, a, kind of a no brainer. Yeah, I just hope you don't ruin the, the the app that tells me where my Southwest flight is. Kind of like any time Microsoft acquires a company that you use software for, uh, it, it like Skype, all of a sudden it just gets wrecked. <laughs> so the the commercial marketplace for it kind of goes away because it it just gets sucked into this vortex of destruction. I hope that FlightAware doesn't do that, even though I'm sure this is a financially well worth it for them. That service is a lot of people do use that service people like me that are just traveling so it's it's a it's a it's a good thing to have and speaking of traveling uh the first a319 neo is now undergoing uh, flight testing for passenger uh for for passenger airlines um one of their aircraft was uh flying around southern china recently and of course uh, airbus has delivered a couple of these aircraft to corporate jet clients um so alan a i have two questions with here Number one, why is there flight testing that's different? Like, why could they deliver a corporate jet while still doing testing for a passenger jet? And then, um, you know, and what's unique about the A319 Neo? Well, the 319 is just a shortened 320. Uh, so Airbus has always had sort of extended length and, sh- and shorter versions of the same aircraft. If you just look at the generic, I think there's a 318 out there. So it's a 318, 319, 320, 321. And if you ever see... One of those little short, what I call stubby Airbus airplanes once in a while, like, ah, (laughs) it's a shortened Airbus. So there's uh, Airbus has seemed to grow or shrink the aircraft as needed, depending on what the marketplace is. I'm not sure why they would have a corporate version of it up and flying already. I don't think they'd be all that much different, so to speak. You think the airplanes would be fairly similar, except for maybe the cabin stuff. Uh, And there may be some differences there. But the the three the three nineteen piece is really fascinating, just because they don't have a lot of customers for it. But they're they're still going to go on with it uh, because they have enough customers to to make it worthwhile. Fifty aircraft tends to be a threshold a lot of times. If you can get past fifty, everything after that starts to make a little bit of money. Uh, but it just depends on what they see as the future. You would think because the the lack of international travel. Right now, you would think the smaller aircraft they're doing sort of shuttle service would be getting a huge bump. But that does not seem to be the case at the minute. 
uh, and ergo the all the Boeing 737 Max things, which are larger aircraft. So it tends to be twin engine, single aisle, longer aircraft that can fit a variety of missions than shorter aircraft that may get a limited scope. So why why does Bombardier seem to dominate that smaller aircraft market? Like why wouldn't the A319 be able to displace some of those little regional jets that you shoot around in the U.S. on you know American Airlines, American Eagle flight or something like that? Wouldn't this be sort of like that same same market? Well, yeah. So Bombardier obviously dumped a lot of those the the regional jets to Mitsubishi just recently to, to raise cash to keep the business aircraft market going. But the, the those smaller twin engine regional jets do seem do seem to be. Uh, effective in terms of fuel efficiency, what I think they're having a trouble with is just the cabins, that customers prefer the larger cabins like in an A319, 320, or a 737. Just a bigger cabin, a little more comfortable. They hold more people, obviously, but it doesn't feel as small and they write smoother, uh, not as noisy. There's a lot of advancements in these latest generation of Airbus and Boeing aircraft that some of the RJs uh, just don't have so you know it's just like when you walk out uh on the tarmac in dc which i've done a number of times and you know you're you're on an rj it's fine but it's not a 737 all right so moving on i've got a couple interesting um headlines this week with uh electric vertical takeoff and landing so number one um, UPS has been delivering some COVID-19 um, vaccines with drones in North Carolina. Uh, they've been shuttling them from uh, one of the Wake, Har- Wake Forest, um, it's the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Hospital, um, and they've been sending some of their uh, COVID-19 vaccines over to a- another smaller local facility at Piedmont Plaza. And of course, they have to be temperature controlled. So this drone, which is pretty cool looking, pretty high tech, keeps these boxes. Um, you know, the, the vaccines, they're packed with, uh, you know, one of those like gel sort of um, temperature control solutions. And they have to be within two and eight degrees Celsius. And that um, also monitors it. So it's some pretty high tech stuff within this drone. Um, obviously, this headline, as far as deliver, not that the COVID-19 vaccines aren't needed, but this seems a little sensational. Now, the fact that they could be delivering anything um, doesn't seem like COVID-19 vaccines need to be delivered like stat, like a, you know, like a, like a kidney or something else would, which would be obviously a great use for this. Um, but obviously, I'm sure COVID is, is getting them into the news more than maybe some other things they could deliver with this. But um, Alan, what strikes you as unique about this? Is this something that has been flying under the radar, uh, pun intended, or um, are we going to just, is this just going to start to become pretty normal using drones in this way, shuttling medical supplies around? Well, I think North Carolina has done, at least been in the forefront of using drones for different applications. And there were some, we talked about it uh, probably six months ago. There's an application in North Carolina, in North Carolina, they couldn't cross state lines, but they're going from like a, a mining site on one side of the mountain to the other side of the mountain, which would have taken them four hours to drive, but they can just flip it over the mountain and probably 20 minutes on a drone. So those applications make a lot of sense. And it, so it seems like North Carolina is is kind of taking advantage of the drone technology and is trying to be a hub of some of those technologies, which is makes total sense to me. I guess the question is on the COVID side, is that because the COVID has to, vaccines have to remain cold, really cold, that's one of the disadvantages of them is uh, do you put them on a truck, on a cold truck and drive them around? Are you 
Can you do them via drone? I do think you're right, Dan. It's just it's more of just demonstrating the technology than any particular need. Because do you, do you think they're going to go next step, though, that, hey, we've had 50 successful deliveries of, of COVID vaccines in a controlled container environment where we maintain temperature. So now we could do a kidney, a heart, a liver transplant. That seems like, like the right answer. Yeah, this, uh, like I said, it doesn't seem like, you know, if you need to get COVID vaccines across a metropolitan area, it seems like a truck certainly suffices to do that in an hour or two, right? There's not like anyone's waiting, waiting urgently for that. But if there's blood needed, you know, for transfusions, for emergencies, and they're out, or there's some sort of unique thing, like some unique medication, and obviously time is of the essence, then yeah, I think the drones would make a ton of sense, even within a metropolitan um, like, I mean, DC is a great example. Obviously, the, the airspace is it's not a good example in the sense that the airspace is the most restricted in maybe the world, um, you know, and like drone flight is prohibited here in, in DC. But obviously, there might be exemptions for this kind of use, but it's really hard to get across the, the even just the downtown area, uh, like two miles, it's difficult to get across it, especially anywhere near either the two rush hours, right? So, you know, if you're in Northern Virginia, or you're in the Alexandria area, which is still Northern Virginia, but, um, and you need to get something over into George Washington Medical Center, which is not, again, geographically that far, but that could take you 45 minutes. So putting on a drone, I mean, it could be there in 15. That, you know, so even if it's not the mountain, mountain region, which also, like you said, makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, there could be a, a lot of good applications for it. So That'll be cool, and that's a when that's a, a more prevalent thing. I'm not sure how prevalent these are around the country. Obviously, this one's making headlines, um, but I'm not sure how, how how much this is in use. We'll have to we'll have to peek more into that and see, because that seems like one of the most viable uses, especially for like we said, emergency life saving stuff. You know, transplants, blood, things that like we need this now. We don't have it here. Oh yeah. Well, in the next the, the next step. Uh, this is a, where I think the technology goes, and you're going to get a merge between sort of the EVT oils and the drones, which is if I have a patient that I need to pick up via helicopter, I can probably do it faster via some sort of larger drone where I can load the patient in and, and get off and going than having a helicopter come from wherever. And so you see how you kind of find that middle ground. It's weird how this is working. Like you got little small drones, you got the big helicopters. But we're going to gradually move to something that's a mixture in between. And you may not have a pilot on these uh, larger electric drones that are carrying passengers to a, a, a medical center or a hospital. May not have a pilot. That's cool, right? Yeah, it could just be a, enough for two people, the, the patient and one, per, you know, one EMT to go with them. And uh, yeah, just hop in and go. And that's a good, and that's a good segue to this new um, thing that Archer's announcing, which is a deal with Reef. And Reef, Reef is uh, the country's largest parking operator. They have 4,800 garages around the U.S., many of which are now getting used less than they used to because of the lack of commuting, et cetera. And so when you think of a parking garage that's down in capacity, what you probably realize is that the roof where people only typically park, if it's like overflow, right, the whole garage is filled, the roofs are probably pretty empty right now. So Archer is partnering with Reef. Uh, to potentially make a lot of these roofs of these parking garages into uh, landing sites, these vertiports. So, Alan, sounds like a smart idea to me. What do you think about it? I think the quantity is the piece that I didn't understand how many they were talking about doing, which is in the thousands. Because you've been on the top of a parking garage. I 
our local airports that way. We've got a parking garage. You go up top there. There is not much there. But it's not set up to take a helicopter landing today. There's lights. There's uh, debris, all kinds of things that are not conducive to landing any sort of aircraft there. So the, I was just running the numbers in my head and say, okay, let's just say it's ten grand to twenty grand to reconfigure each one of these rooftop decks into a heliport type landing area. That's a lot of cash. Ten grand. Ten grand doesn't get you to remodel your kitchen. That's right, right? That's that's what I, that's why I said it's small, right? Right? Got to take all the lights down that are on top because there's going to be lighting up there. There's going to be all there's going to be stuff that you're going to have to get off of there, and then you're going to have to sort of cordon it off so you can't have a car drive up, drive up in there because you know, you know there are going to be somebody is going to try to drive up in there when there's a landing or takeoff happening. So you're going to have to do some work, and you're right, ten grand seems like a small drop in the bucket. So I, I was going to estimate on the low side and go, okay. 10,000 times 1,000, right? So you're talking about millions of dollars here. Well, and the other thing is, think of the customer. So whoever's taking these flights at first are going to be probably wealthy. They're going to be savvy. They're going to be expecting a certain experience, which you can see in the rendering, which is cool. There's like, looks like there's ivy covering the side of the garage and they've done all this stuff. And so it's not going to be like, hey, yeah, go to the walk up the stairs and just push P, you know, P5 and go get on your thing. There's going to need to be an experience built in there. There's probably gonna be a separate elevator maybe, or they're just going to have to dress up getting to the, getting to the top of the parking garage, right? There's going to need to be maybe a, a waiting room installed separately in the garage. Like I feel like they're going to need to make it pretty removed from the typical parking experience. And that's going to be, that's going to be pretty costly because you know, it's just like if you're to walk into like you, you like using Tesla and we're about to chat about them in a second, you wouldn't want to walk in some, you wouldn't buy a Tesla in like a, I don't know, just any warehouse, right? There's a, there's an experience you expect, right? Apple stores look the way they look for a reason. So if this is Archer's brand, Archer's going to want it to look a certain way. So it's, it's probably going to be quite a renovation, even if the, the general bones of the structure are already there. So is the play then to keep the Jobies and the Whisks and whoever else out of that marketplace? Is that? That's a good question. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. The, block them out so you, they, they couldn't do that. That may, be, that may be the rationale here is not so much that they're going to retrofit a bunch of tops of parking garages. I don't think that's going to happen immediately as much as just keeping the competition away. That that seems like the bigger play at the moment. Because how much revenue can it possibly generate for the company that operates a parking garage? You know, they're going to want something too, right? For every landing, they're going to want 500 bucks or whatever it is. Yeah, there's going to be a, a cost involved in there. So I don't I don't see Archer investing a lot in this besides just playing, marking out their territory. And then last on the docket today, um, interesting article that Tesla has confirmed that all of their scrapped batteries are recycled and none of them are ending up in landfills. So obviously this is good for the EVTOL market because people are getting concerned that, you know, there's been some battery fires and what are we going to do with all this new e-waste? Like e-waste is a problem in all sorts of electronics, especially, uh, and these are just small consumer electronics. So obviously the more battery powered vehicles, these are going to start to run out of their service life, right? There's a million electric scooters on the road. They're going to start to get scrapped and end up in landfills. And like, what do we do with the batteries and all these different components? So Tesla's saying batteries are no problem. So how do you feel like this is going to impact the, uh, the EVTOL market? Uh, it's going to make it much more acceptable to have these large battery packs on aircraft. Because obviously, aircraft going to use a lot of batteries in terms of the quantity per aircraft. 
So you, you want to have that little circular bit going on on the recycling end. And the way Tesla has done a lot of their designs is that they're considered what happens at end of life. That's one of the things that Musk has driven into the company is we just don't build it. And then 20 years later, 10 years later, somebody else has to deal with the consequences. What they're doing is looking at it from beginning to end to make sure that we're not creating some bigger problem that's going to hurt electric vehicles, aircraft or cars or anything else. So the recycling bit, I think, is really key to the success of this. And and because so much of, of electric vehicles, be it, be it aircraft or, or cars, is regulatory based, right? There's, there's so much control going on in Washington, D.C. You want to make sure that you don't get into a political fight with any of the environmental groups because they're going to hold you up. Yeah, so I, I, I hope that other battery companies, and there's going to be more battery companies and the aircraft companies in general are thinking about what end of life on an aircraft looks like. And I'll, I'll give you the example because Cessna is probably a good example. There's a lot of Cessnas that are 50, 60 years old. They're made out of aluminum, mostly, some steel, but pretty much a 1950, 1960, 1970s version of a Cessna 172, 182 can be recycled. Pretty much all of it can be. There's, there's not much that wouldn't be recyclable. But when you start moving to carbon fiber composites or uh, something that has a thermal set epoxy system for structure, that's not really recyclable today. And so you are creating this little landfill issue with a number of aircraft. And, and the lifetimes might, may not be as long, depending on sort of how you're going to operate the aircraft. So there's, there's some really interesting things that we haven't seen answered on the EV tail market is what does an end of life look like for one of these electric aircraft? Not sure yet. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, uh, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're listening or watching. And we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.